For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt McCann. My wife is Laura. We got a 10-for-1 deal with our daughter Natalie, meaning she's like 10 kids. And we just recently had our son Silas. So the best thing about having a new baby is not that God gives you a new soul to take care of. It's that families at this church give you meals. So we have been radically and wildly blessed the past two weeks to have a lot of you showing up at our house at dinner time with fully cooked meals for us. So that has been a wild blessing, and I just wanted to say thank you. Um, on Sundays, every Sunday, we look to God's grace to bless us with his word, to strengthen our resolve, to live in light of the gospel. So before we get into this story this morning, let me pray. Father, we need you. We love you. We are so grateful for your word. Thank you for loving us enough to give it. I pray that we would see your son this morning in our story in this text and pray that we would, you would get the glory and, and we would have increased joy. Amen. So I'd venture to guess that no one in here remembers what happened 11 years ago about this week. Maybe you had an egg sandwich in the morning. Maybe you stubbed your toe. Probably nothing too memorable, right? That's because most of you live in Massachusetts or were in Massachusetts around that time. But if you lived in the Gulf of Mexico in the southern United States, you'd have a totally different picture of 11 years ago, right? Now you might remember that that was when Hurricane Katrina devastated that whole area, claimed the lives of over 1,200 people, $108 billion in property damage. But what was amazing was, um, in all the news stories of the devastation, there was a thread amid all that of the selflessness and love for mankind. People were um, giving their time and their money to complete strangers to help, to help alleviate that distress. USA Today reported that private donations totaled $2.7 billion in just the first 11 weeks. At the end of it all, private donations went over $4 billion. The international response was big too. Hundreds of millions of dollars in support. People were sent over to help aid. People gave loads of their time and their energy and their resources. Tremendous compassion from the global community and Americans all throughout the states. Now remember, they were doing this to relieve the distress of pure strangers. So why is that? Why all the compassion for strangers? Why would people give time and money to people that they don't know? Family, you get, but why strangers? Was everybody who did that Christian? No, of course not. Many non-believers sacrificed and cried over the hurt and gave themselves to the people affected by this. So where does the impulse from the unbeliever to do good to others they don't know come from? I want you to hold that in your thought as we go through this somewhat strange story in the, the latter end of the book of Acts. So if you turn to Acts 28, if you're following along, the story Allison read in your Bible this morning is titled Paul on Malta. So after being weak, storm-tossed at sea, rather than reaching Italy and then Rome as God had promised, Paul's boat's full of so sailors soldiers, and prisoners, and they're shipwrecked off the coast of Sicily on an obscure island. 
Malite in the book of Acts is Malta today. So I don't see him, but um, if you wanted to book a trip to Malta, you could contact Tim Barker, who works at TripAdvisor. He could tell you where you should eat and stay. Tim can hook you up with a hotel room from a guy named Nikolai on St. Paul's Bay. As you're in your room sipping your espresso, you could look out the window and you could see the um, St. Paul's Islands where Paul crashed his ship and swam to shore. You can go and see these things because the the book of Acts is a true account about real stories that took place in real places in real time. Now we're coming to the end of this and we're in the last chapter after almost two years of preaching through Acts. So what we saw last week was that Christians can't die. Literally are invincible until God has finished his purposes with them. That's beautiful, right? What a relief it is to be in Jesus. Now, Paul's already gone through a lot in the book of Acts. So if you were thinking that uh, maybe his journey to Rome would be uneventful, you'd be completely wrong. His boat is destroyed at sea. But God said Paul would get to Rome, and so that's exactly what's going to happen. And that's where our story picks up today. Luke writes, uh, after we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. Now what Luke writes next, I'm sure, was a breath of fresh air to cold and starving shipwrecked men because it says the native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and they welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. So just to explain a little bit, native people there in your Bible is, tran- is literally translated from barbarians. If you're looking at a Bible, it usually has a footnote on that word, and it sends you down and explains that a barbarian was someone who didn't speak Greek. So in the Roman world, barbarians were foreign folk, someone you couldn't understand. Our equivalent today would be people from Arkansas. <laughs> barbarians, right? Easy targets. But to call someone a barbarian in that day wasn't an insult like it would be today. These Maltese, they're not violent savages. They're just formally not Hellenized, meaning they're not Greeks. And the fortunate thing for Paul and these other 275 people who are on the boat is that they're not savages or cannibals, right? The story is suspenseful. It's full of drama. But for these cold, shipwrecked, really hungry men, to just come off this shipwreck onto an island where there was cannibals would be too much to bear, I think. So that doesn't happen. God's faithful. What you get instead, written by Luke, is the exact opposite. Instead of a scumbag type people who are ready to take advantage of the misfortune of others, which could have happened, we get Luke drawing our attention to the very opposite nature of the natives. He says they showed them unusual kindness. In Luke's words, this is no common philanthropy, meaning these Maltese have an uncommon love and a large heart rooted in their nature for people that they don't know. Notice that this, again, is for random people, Roman soldiers, sailors, and maybe the easiest people to naturally despise, prisoners. Waving hello, maybe, and not attacking would have been enough to call them friendly and kind, but he says that their, their kindness goes uncommon and that it extends to generous hospitality. Now, what really I found interesting through this text was that these non-Christian Maltese, and as it concerns hospitality, instinctively understand the heart of God. Hebrews 13.1 says, 
Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That Hebrews verse is these Maltese people, even though they don't have this gospel life change. They don't know who Jesus is. Little did they know that at the time, they probably had the closest thing to an angel that they'd ever get in Paul, right? Their response to witnessing a natural disaster like this was to aid them. Now, most Americans can ascribe to this. Good people responding to the distress of a victim is a repeat message in our cultural context. Hurricane Katrina was the one that I opened with. It was just the foremost in my mind. But there have been a bunch of recent examples of natural disasters where a lot of Americans give a lot of time and a lot of money to assist people that they don't know. And that extends to Christians and non-Christians alike. Non-Christians have marvelous capacities for compassion and empathy that result in their willingness to sacrifice for the good of people that they don't know. So I would say that there's a lot of, there's a lot of non-Christians in America even who would say that Jesus' words of whatever you wish to have done to you, do to others also, they would live by that. They would have that as a personal motto. So what are we to make, then, of the goodness of the unbelievers on Malta? What are we to make of the person who does not know Jesus, but they wrote a $25,000 check to Red Cross to help uh, Hurricane Katrina victims? What does the, the Bible have to say about this? So it's a good question to ask, right? Just one page over in your Bible, uh, one page over for me anyway, is Paul's letter to the Romans. And Paul wrote this letter before he landed on Malta. So what really got me going as I was preparing for this was what a wonderful example of Romans 2 these people are. And Paul wrote that before he even met them. So Romans 2.14 says this. When Gentiles, meaning people who don't have the law of God, when Gentiles who don't have the law of God, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now, listen to this part. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. So there's our answer. The reason why these Maltese people welcomed strangers and built a fire, even on a remote island that has never heard the gospel, they had the law of God written on their hearts. It's the same reason today why the American Red Cross can raise enough money to treat 65,000 disasters every year, to give aid to 65,000 different disasters every year. It's because the law of God is written on the heart of man. God has not completely removed his goodness and care from the earth. So in theology, what we do is we call this common grace. It's God's goodness and grace to all of mankind, good and evil alike, to leave the the germ of reality or the light of the, the flicker of goodness in the heart of man. So even unconverted people bear the image of God, And to bear the image of God means to have the law of God 
written on your heart. And part of that means to have the ability to know that people in misery and need is a bad thing. So when Paul shipwrecks on Malta, strangers welcome him into a fire. So when Hurricane Katrina smashed the Gulf Coast, a lot of people gave a lot of time and a lot of money to aid in that relief. Now I want to continue on in the story. Let's keep tracking this. In verse 3 it says, Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So Paul survives a shipwreck only to get bit by a poisonous snake. You might be thinking, man, the poor guy can't catch a break. He's hungry. It's been weeks. He's cold, right? The guy's helping out gathering brushwood, and he happens to pick up a snake that gets put on the fire, and it happens to lunge out of the fire in perfect timing and latch right onto his hand. So we know that the snake is poisonous because the natives' response to seeing Paul get bit, immediately they go, Paul's going to die. Now, because it's 2016, I googled poisonous snake bites, and they're not as big of a deal apparently today because of such wonderful medical care that we have, but if you got bit by a poisonous snake in Paul's day, it was sayonara. WebMD said it wouldn't be that bad at first. The pain wouldn't get you right away. So you might be thinking, hey, maybe that snake wasn't poisonous. I think I'm okay here. You try to shake it off, then all of a sudden your eyelids start drooping. The pain's not in your hand where you got bit. The pain's in your stomach. Your skin starts to change color. And then the really bad stuff starts to happen. Convulsions, shock, paralysis, and then that's it. So this is exactly what the Maltese people in verse 6 are thinking. They're watching and they're waiting for this to happen. They know that he's going to die because anytime someone gets bit by that snake on that island, they're gone. But they're waiting and he doesn't swell and he doesn't die. And so they know that they've just witnessed a miracle. But as a people without a gospel framework, they have no idea what to make of this. They have no knowledge of Christ. So they just say, he's a God. He must be a God. No doubt this man is a murderer. I'm sorry, tracking. This is where we get to see what people think, how, how people think without a knowledge of God. The next verse, they say, no doubt this man is a murderer. He escaped the sea, but justice has not allowed him to live. They say, ah, he must have done something really bad to deserve this. Who survives a shipwreck only to die by a snake bite? So you can understand their reference here in reading through the text. Um, when they say justice, they could mean the Greek goddess Dike, who was the goddess of justice, moral order, and right judgment. Or it could be a less uh, defined way of ascribing to the universe just retribution. So basically, they have a system of good and evil. And in their system, they know intuitively, instinctively, that wrong deserves to be punished that murderers deserve to die. Now, do you know why they believe that? Why do they have this system of justice? It's because they have the law of God written on their hearts. It's just another way, another example of how human beings have it written on their hearts and instilled in their minds. And people today are no different than people on Malta pre-100 A.D., we wouldn't say today, oh, the goddess DK got Paul. 
But we wouldn't say, oh, the blind lady justice got Paul, although maybe someone maybe would even say that. What would be said today is karma got Paul. You know, Paul didn't pump enough good energy into the universe, and so the universe, tricky lady, got Paul. And don't forget that Paul's a prisoner, so for all they know, Paul is guilty of a crime. Now, there are times when good Americans would think through Paul's assumed demise here in a very similar way, and I can prove it. In December, there was a young man hiding from the police because he was breaking and entering. It's a good reason to be hiding from the police. He's breaking and entering into homes. The cops show up with the dogs, so he runs and hides. This is a true story. But this didn't happen in Melrose where normal events take place. This happened in Florida. So while this young man is hiding, an 11-foot alligator came up from behind him and ate him. Dead serious. This is a true story. What do you think most people's response was to hearing that story? Good. He deserved it. He deserved it. I was reading all the responses in the news article columns, and the guy's neighbor literally said, he said this, quote, I would say that it is poetic justice, end quote. Where does that sense of justice come from? Why does everyone think crime deserves punishment? It's because of Romans 2. The law of God is on the height. It's true that wherever sinful man can generally pervert justice and get away with it for their own reasons and for their own advancement, they will. But that does not remove the fact that deep down, they know that God pays back the lawbreaker. So like the Maltese with the law of God written on the heart, mankind has extraordinary capacities for good works and kindness. They have a sense of justice and at even times will fight really hard for it. They're operating under common grace, but this isn't enough to save mankind, is it? It's not enough to remove sin and unrighteousness from the soul. It's not enough, common grace is not enough to bring people to a right understanding and worship of God. So look at in our text how the Maltese miss God in their reaction. It says that, but when they had waited a long time and they saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and they said he was a God. They don't break out in praises over the miracle and say, praise God, Paul. What an amazing grace and kindness of God to save you from the power of that poisonous snake. Let us think on how wonderful of an illustration it is that God's power in Christ to save us from the power of the evil one, that fiery serpent, the devil. They don't do this. There are people with large capacities to do good to man. They have a sense of right and wrong, but none of this has led them to understanding who God is. We see that in the way that they start to worship Paul. They're ready to worship him. So I want to finish this story with Paul and Malta, and then we're going to come back to some applications surrounding this. The text continues. It says, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed. And putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. 
They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So the hospitality continues on the island. Publius named the first man, the central man. He's a guy with extensive means. He's got enough money to hold up 276 people on his compound for three days. Again, that we see that the disposition of these natives is one of generous kindness to strangers. Now, after so much hospitality done to some of God's people, God's about to turn the spigot of blessing onto the Maltese people. Publius' father has some serious health and bodily issues going on, so in typical Acts fashion, Paul heals him. But I want to draw your attention to the two important descriptors in this, this part of the text. It says that Paul prayed and Paul laid his hands on him. Paul prayed because the power to do anything about this was with God and not Paul. So imagine if Paul just walked into the room with this sick guy and he said, Alakazam, and light flew out of his fingertips and healed this guy. Everyone would say, Paul was a God, praise be to Paul. So Paul stops, he prays, he shows that the power is not his, the power is going to come from somewhere else. And then Luke says that he laid his hands on him. That's to show that the power is not only from God, it's going to be through his apostle. This was so that the power displayed by Paul would confirm the message spoken by Paul. So the whole island then is now aware that there's a man of God on the island and they start flocking to him. Remarkably, by a work of the Spirit, the islanders are healed of their diseases And by the time Paul and the others are ready to leave, we see that the love that they have for them at this point now is to load them up with their stuff and send them away to Rome. After three months together, these shipwrecked strangers are now friends. So the thing that I struggled with a little bit in this text, and I'll just share this with you over this past couple weeks in preparing is that Luke does not explicitly state that Paul preached the gospel. And he does not say specifically that the islanders had this massive conversion to Christ on the island. So because of this, we don't know for sure that Publius and the others are with Christ right now. We just can't know that in this life. But we can assume that Paul's three months on the island of praying and healing was accompanied with gospel proclamation as it was everywhere else in the book of Acts. And I'll say that it's not without reason for us to assume that. This last verse says that the people's relationship with Paul at the end of three months was at the point where they were willing to give all their stuff away. So to be around the Apostle Paul for three months would mean that Jesus was proclaimed. And if Jesus was proclaimed and they had rejected Jesus, I don't see the text ending on such a high note as it did. In fact, church history has it that Publius was converted, that he was Malta's first pastor, and that he was martyred under the Roman emperor Hadrian. So Publius becoming pastor Publius is not something that we can know for sure, but I suspect that it's true. What we can know for sure is that God thought it extremely important to send Paul to Malta. Important enough to shipwreck him on this island. It's not that God couldn't calm the seas, right? He still could have. So God had a plan for these Maltese that included time with the Apostle Paul. And the Spirit of God penned this story for us to know something. And there's a 
a few things that we could pull out of the text this morning, but I just want to close with two. The first thing is one that touches on me and was convicting me is this is to Christians who have drawn an unhealthy distinction between good works and gospel works. Christians who have drawn an unhealthy distinction between good works and gospel works. So good theology tells us that our good works do not earn God's favor and do not make us worthy people deserving of salvation in Christ. Man cannot do a good work independent of God in the good works they do is God's common grace and has zero power to make man righteous. So this extends to popular works of our day. Cancer walks, food drives, clothing donations, the extra dollar at the checkout counter, and in a specific example of Malta, disaster relief. So none of these can earn favor and love with God. You could literally be CEO of Red Cross, donate every dollar that Red Cross gives you back to Red Cross, never sleep, and only do everything good for everybody else only all the time. And that would not be enough to stand before God as righteous. You can't earn his favor that way. Belief in the Son of God who lived, died, and rose is the only thing that matters. So either you have this saving grace, this saving work of Jesus, or you have nothing to stand on. So that's a fact. And with that, it's right for a Christian to reject the world's understanding of good works. If you do good works, then that makes you a good person. The the human enterprise of good works is for the glorification of man and not God. So it is right for us Christians to reject that, um, that that thinking that good works make us right before God. However, and this is my point, and it's taken me a long time to get to it, that does not mean that a Christian rejects good works. The Christian is not to reject good works simply because the world has corrupt understanding of what they are. Good works that meet other people's needs should never be rejected by a Christian. In fact, Christians should be foremost in good works. So it's a sharp rebuke then, if the world knows how to love people, if the islanders on Malta know how to love people, and Christians do not. So to give you a glimpse into my own wrong and sinful thinking on this, uh, literally just two weeks ago, my company was doing a big company-wide blood drive. And it was a big deal for everybody at the office. It was a big push, sign up for the blood drive. So my office is filled with people who do good to others. Um, A lot of good people who would go to great lengths to help you out. Warm-hearted, generous, full of humanity. But I didn't sign up for the blood drive. And there could be non-sinful reasons to sign up for a blood drive. You could be absolutely terrified of needles, unless you say, well, perfect love casts out fear, and then it's sinful to be scared of needles. If you're afraid of needles, you don't have to sign up for a blood drive. That wasn't my reason, though. I'm fine with it. If I'm honest with myself, there's a part of me that doesn't sign up for the blood drive because I think, I've got Jesus. I'm good. Works don't make me right before God. I don't need to do that. And the blood drive with me is just one example. That extends to a lot of things. Soup kitchens, 
The Salvation Army played at Christmas. Like I said, the dollar at the checkout counter really gets me going. I always say no. But do, do, is that the proper response? Should my heart not be eager to help alleviate the distress of other people? You don't have to be involved in everything. That's not my point. But if you're never involved in anything, that's what we call a red flag. There could be something seriously wrong in your own heart. And I'm checking into mine now. So if that's you, a sinful attitude towards other people's needs, let the quickness of these Maltese people be a cause for you to pray through that this week and think on that. But the second point is for those who in the room would be like the Maltese people. You'd be so quick to be on that beach and welcome in strangers and make a fire. But yet you have not put your faith in the work and beauty of Christ. So it should be clear that although Malta was full of good works, God still had to send Paul there. The Maltese people still needed to hear the gospel They still needed to see divine works of God among their people. The gospel had to be brought there. Good works wasn't enough for Malta to be saved. And good works are not enough for us to be saved. There's a lot of Americans that would have loved this message if it just said, do good works, sign up for disaster relief, give money to the Red Cross. But as soon as you say, have faith in Christ and turn from sin and repentance. The message is over. America cringes at someone who does good and then says, I'm doing this because Christ has shown such marvelous love for me and I'm extending that out. America just wants good people to do good works and to stand on their own. So if that's you, the call is to turn from that today. If you have a heart, right, that leaps at the opportunity to help. Beautiful. That is awesome. And you should look to God and say, God, it is your grace that does that. But if your heart doesn't bow at the Lordship of Christ, then the invitation for you this morning is to see the beauty of Jesus who came to relieve us of all our distresses and sin. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your gospel. Without it, we're lost. We could be full of good works for men and be completely in the dark in terms of righteousness and justification. Lord, we pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, convict us of sin and turn our hearts to you, that we would see good works as from your hands to show off your goodness and you would be praised for that. Amen.